This is a GRDC podcast. Heat shock in chickpeas can cause flowers and pods to drop, leading to lower crop yields. But what if you could introduce traits into the plant to make it more heat tolerant? Hello, I'm Tony Crowley, and in today's podcast, you'll hear that even a small difference in temperature tolerance could result in the harvesting of hundreds of tonnes of crop yield that might otherwise have been lost. Dr Angela Patterson from the University of Sydney's Narrabri Research Facility is using seed sourced from harsh foreign climates to identify traits that could help Australian chickpea crops beat the heat. Like any crop that's grown over winter, a heat shock's going to damage them. So in particular, if you get a heat shock right in the middle of flowering, the plants will stop setting pods, and that'll have big consequences for your yields. And then also if you have terminal heat, so from the end of October, if you still haven't harvested the chickpeas, they're still trying to set pods and they're still trying to fill those pods, if it's too hot, the plants will just suffer and you'll lose yield that way as well. Why do some varieties of chickpeas perhaps perform better in the heat than others? There's several mechanisms that the plants can do to try and get past the heat. So they can either produce heat shock proteins or they can have pollen that can still fertilise their eggs even when it's hot. And some plants just avoid the heat by potting earlier. So that's actually called chilling tolerance because they, it sounds like an oxymoron, they actually pod earlier when it's colder, but that means that they avoid the heat at the end of the season. And the varieties that we typically grow here in Australia, are they okay in terms of the heat? Obviously there's some room for improvement. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a big variety. And so growers up north would be familiar with Kyabra and PBA Pistol. So they're more suited to those shorter environments because they can pot a bit earlier and get through their phenology faster compared to the ones that are grown down south. There are also some cultivars from Western Australia that the growers over in the north would be a little less familiar with, Rapali and Sonali. And those cultivars do the heat avoidance thing, so they pod early. But there is a big variety here, but it's not as big relative to what we can find overseas. So if you look at places like India and the Middle East, they have a lot hotter growing conditions than we do. And so that's a good place that we can look for genetic material that might do better than what the current Australian cultivars do. And that's part of the work that you've been undertaking, isn't it? You've actually been going and seeking out these varieties and and pulling together, I guess, samples? Yes. So I'd like to say I personally have been over the Middle East, but no, I haven't. Some great people over many years have done collections of wild chickpea relatives, as well as older varieties or just older breeding material or just things that farmers have grown for many years, hundreds of years, in these hot, dry places. And they've been collected and brought into the gene bank. So they've got... In um, Ikrasat in India, they've got quite an extensive collection. And then some of those, and plus others, have been brought into Australia through the Australian Grains Gene Bank down in Horsham in Victoria. And so at the University of Sydney, we've taken some of those out of the gene bank in little packets and we've started growing them up in Narrabri in our hot conditions to try and screen the ones that don't just do well under hot conditions but also have decent yields and ascochyta tolerance and all the other things that we need to look for in a chickpea. And so what traits do those overseas varieties have that make them perform well in the heat? Oh, there's a great variety. So some of these international lines are a bit wild and <laughs> they, um, yeah, a grower would look at that and go, that doesn't even 
even look like a chickpea, you know, things with really big leaves and they're straggly and ugly looking in the field. Some of them have actual grains that are spiky or that look like coral or like brains, you know, they're, they're re- really wriggly and strange looking things. There's black chickpeas, there's cream ones, there's yellow ones, there's green chickpeas. I've got a couple of heat tolerant lines. The actual pea itself, even at maturity, is bright green. But the tolerance is in the physiology. So it's the way that the plant can perform when it's really hot. Things like I mentioned before, the heat shock proteins or its ability to still set pods when it's hot. So the pollen, um, it can be up to two to three degrees difference in the tolerance of the pollen to heat. So you might have a line that would stop pollinating at 33 degrees temperature or you might have one that will go up to 35 degrees and so that helps the plants still set pods on those really hot days in our conditions. I wonder what hummus made from some of these crazy varieties would taste like. (laughs) Yeah I don't think you'd really want to eat some of the spiky ones. They're almost like velcro you put them on your hand if you hold your hand upside down they stick to your hand it's quite incredible. So how difficult or easy for that matter would it be or could it be to bring in some of that genetics and and some of those markers and and put them into Australian varieties to make them perform better? Well, it's a lot of fun. (laughs) It's great when you look out over all the short rows and you see some tall ones and short ones and ugly ones and looking looking good and some looking terrible. So the actual physical crossing is no different if you've got one that's come from overseas or one that's from Australia. So you, you get your tweezers and you take the pollen out of the one you want and then you put it on the female and then you pollinate it first thing in the morning. So that sort of operation, it's something that an experienced technician has to do it's not something anyone can do but that actual operation is the same depend it doesn't matter where it comes from how far off do you think we are from having a result here or something that you can say okay this can work well breeding and pre-breeding are very long processes so for a variety to be released it can be about 10 years between the time when the cross is made and when it will actually be released for growers that's because you just need to grow them many many years to stabilize the line so it's what they call true breeding so if you plant it the following year it behaves the same as it did the previous one if you add on a few years of pre-breeding before that it might be kind of four or five maybe six years before then it goes into the breeding program so we can be talking 15 20 years between when you go I'm going to try this and then when the results actually make it to a grower so it requires a lot of patience but the breeding and pre-breeding is well worth the monetary investment multiple studies have found that bang for your buck you get with breeding programs things um, anything from disease resistance through to abiotic stress tolerance the bang for your buck is really well worth the investment so what could this potentially mean for the Australian industry? Well, if we're talking about improving heat tolerance, if we can find a line that can perform better, if we've got maybe a two degree difference in temperature, that can equate to hundreds of tonnes worth of yield difference. Or if you're talking about potting, if we can bring the potting date earlier by a week, that's a week worth of pods that a plant can set. So per hectare again, that can also be hundreds of kilograms worth of pods. And so, yeah, it's well worth the investment and the time. And we hope in the near future the growers will get to see these heat-tolerant lines in their fields. It sounds like you're having heaps of fun doing it too, Angela. Thanks so much for talking to us. Angela Patterson from the University of Sydney's Narrabri Research Facility, speaking to Stacey Wordsworth. And if you get a little confused about the work of pre-breeders versus breeders, think of the car manufacturing industry. Suppliers of car parts are the pre-breeders in the plant world. 
the manufacturers who deliver completed cars assembled from those various parts are the plant breeders. And if you get a lemon, that's a whole different analogy involving horticulturists. You've been listening to a GRDC podcast. I'm Tony Crowley.